This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. Greetings and welcome to this edition of Berkeley Conversations COVID-19. I'm Dan Mogula from UC Berkeley's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. Today, we'll be talking about the pandemic's profound and still unfolding impacts on the presidential election and American politics. No aspect is being left untouched from the basic mechanics of voting to the core issues at the heart of the campaigns. Our panelists today are Henry Brady, Dean of the Golden School of Public Policy and an expert in electoral politics and voting. Erwin Chemerinsky is the Dean of Berkeley Law and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Sarah Anzia is an Associate Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at the Goldman School and the Department of Political Science. Her areas of expertise include elections and political parties. <laughs> Bertrand Ross is the Chancellor's Professor of Law at Berkeley Law. His areas of study and expertise include voting rights and marginalized communities. Philip Stark is the Associate Dean, the Division of Mathematical and Physical Sciences, and he's a Professor of Statistics. Philip is an expert on election security. So let's just start. I'd like to go around the horn here. Sarah, I'd like to start with you. Like all of us, um, watching the paper every day, there's been these tidal waves of information. Sarah, what are you noticing from your academic perspective? What are you taking note of? What are you really watching closely right now? And I'm going to ask all of you that same question. Well, I guess what's been most interesting to me is that these days, with everything being so intensely partisan, that you know whatever candidates or elected officials do or say, we're trained to look for the partisan motive in it. Uh, and in part, that's because there probably is one. But right now, in the current crisis, so much is up in the air that even if candidates and elected officials were only trying to gain an edge for their party, it's not obvious always how they would do it. So it'll be really interesting to see how this shakes out for the major political parties in November. Got it. Erwin, let me come to you, the legal perspective. What are you noting? What are you watching? Will the November 2020 election be conducted in a way that facilitates people being able to vote in a manner consistent with public health? Very worried about whether or not we're going to have the ability of people to all get to the polls or have absentee ballots available in a way that they can all be counted. Bertrand, your turn. Yes, um, my principal worry is on the disparate impact of whatever procedures that are put in place to try to conduct an election in a fair and healthy way. Um, what we've seen in terms of the impact of COVID-19 is that it has had a disparate impact on minority communities, black and brown communities throughout the country in terms of hospitalization and death rates. And that's going to stoke some fear into these communities with, res with regards to voting, especially if voting takes place in a way that makes them feel that their health is at risk. So that's one of the principal worries that I have on my mind. Henry, what are you watching? What are you concerned about? Right now, I'm, I'm looking at the fact that the Trump administration has decided to make an enormous political and policy bet. And the bet is that they can reopen the economy, that the economy will come back in time for the election and that COVID-19 won't re-erupt in a way that will either stifle those efforts uh, and or kill lots of people. It's an extraordinary bet. Uh, Mr. Trump was hoping that his popularity in terms of the way he ran the economy would get him reelected. 
Now with the uh, unemployment at 15%, uh, he's uh, taking a different tack. Philip, from the point of security, cybersecurity, election security, what are you watching? What are you concerned about? Well, to some extent, all of the above. Um, I'm especially concerned about the push that some states are having to allow online voting, online return of uh, voted ballots, which is uh, about the most dangerous thing we could do in elections. I'm also concerned about rolling out voting by mail for everyone without doing it in a careful uh, thoughtful way. <clears throat> Decisions need to be made relatively quickly in order for there to be capacity to do that. Um, there are states that have variants than others, but uh, biggest concern is online voting. Second biggest concern is vote by mail that isn't done in a considered thoughtful way. So I think just this first round of answers points to the incredible array of issues and complicated issues at that. But I want to go, Erwin, to you with a very basic question. And it's a question that I'm not sure ever has really been asked in the past in America. Will we even have an election? There is concern that it could be canceled, it could be delayed, that the president could call it off. What does the Constitution have to say? Yes, there will be an election. That's the answer from the Constitution. And I know this in people's minds because just the other day, Poland canceled its national election four days before it was scheduled to occur. I think the starting point here is the 20th Amendment to the Constitution. And it says that the president's term ends at noon on January 20th. That's, of course, true of the vice president as well. So if there wasn't an election held, then on January 20th, succession takes place and the Speaker of the House of Representatives become the president of the United States. I think that by itself will ensure an election will be held. Now, the timing of the election is set by Congress. And since 1845, the federal statute has said, it will be the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so it will be Tuesday, November 3rd. Congress conceivably could change that statute and alter the date. That seems unlikely. Also, the date at which a state has to choose its electors for the Electoral College, the date at which the electors vote in the Electoral College is determined by statute. That could be changed by Congress. But ultimately, there will be an election and there will be an inauguration of president on January 20th, 2021. And let me follow up really quickly, uh, two follow-ups. First of all, we're an administration that many observers believe has disregarded or really changed some important norms. Despite what you say, what, would, what do you think the scenario would be if the president says, you know, I realize what the constitution says, but we're in extraordinary times here. How would that play out, do you think? There is no provision of the Constitution that will allow the president to do that. Even during the Civil War, even during world wars, even during the Spanish-American flu, there are always elections held on schedule. No matter how deferential this court might be to the president, it's not going to be if it's about canceling the November elections and declaring himself to continue in office. I think that it's unthinkable even if the pandemic flares up again in the fall, that there's not going to be an election held this November. Okay, last question for now on the legal front. What about on the state level, on the local level? What does the Constitution have to say there? And is it more likely, perhaps, that state elections could be delayed? Each state conducts the election within it. And the states, of course, administer the election process, and they decide whether it's going to be where the polling places will be located. They decide if they're going to allow vote by mail. They even decide if there's going to be online voting. 
The one interesting provision of the Constitution here is that Article 2, Section 1 says that each state through its legislature shall decide the manner of choosing its electors in the Electoral College. It is conceivable that a state legislature could say, we're going to choose the electors from this state to the Electoral College rather than allow the voters in this state to be able to have a say. I don't think that's likely. I think that it would cause such an outrage because people would be denied the ability to choose the electors from that state. But there is a constitutional provision that would allow it. Okay, so Sarah, uh, hoping and assuming that everything that Irwin says is correct, and it usually is, let's talk about the election from 30,000 feet. And I'm going to ask a number of you to weigh in on this. How do you think that this crisis is going to affect the presidential election? Um, Does it improve somebody's chances, Um, Trump or Biden? What's your crystal ball telling you right now? I don't have one. I can't tell you what's going to happen in November. Um, I will say that there is this perception uh, that a lot of people have that what's going to happen over the course of the campaign is going to matter a lot for the election. So one candidate does really well in a debate, there's some scandal, that that's going to move voters and affect the outcome. But actually, political scientists have shown that there are a lot of, um, you can do a pretty good job of predicting at least the popular vote using a couple of fundamentals that you can measure well in advance of the election. The first one is the state of the economy and not the economy during the president's full term, um, but the economy in the election year. Uh, So you have more economic growth in the second quarter of the election year. That's going to translate into greater vote share for the incumbent president's party. The second is presidential approval ratings, right? So it's more about the hand you're dealt uh, than how you play the cards. And you can see this as kind of a referendum on the president's party. Well, what does that then mean for 2020, November 2020? We don't know yet how bad the economy will be this year, um, how fast it's collapsing in the second quarter, but it's not good. So there's that. President Trump's approval ratings are not great. They're okay. I think that the bottom line is, if you had asked me a few months ago when the economy was booming, I would have said that President Trump had a solid chance of being reelected. Now I think those chances are diminishing uh, because of the fundamentals. Henry, I want to follow up with you on the same question. How do you think the uh, pandemic is affecting the electoral chances of both of the the main party candidates? And what do you think might lie ahead? Well, I agree with Sarah. I'm a, I'm a fundamentalist, and I believe that things like the state of the economy and presidential popularity matter a lot. Uh, but I also think that at the margin, some voters will look at the character of the candidates. Uh, in 2016, they thought Hillary Clinton was knowledgeable. They thought Donald Trump spoke his mind. Uh, they weren't quite so sure between the two candidates who had more compassion or empathy uh, or experience, even. Uh, but Now, it seems to me that that's going to benefit Joe Biden. Uh, He's got knowledge on his side. He's got experience on his side. uh, He's got empathy on his side. And so I think reflecting, especially what's been happening recently in the press briefings that Donald Trump has been giving, uh, I think people will look and say, Joe Biden's a person who has empathy and who has the ability to get us out of this situation. Furthermore, Biden can argue that he did it once. Uh, Trump is trying to argue that he brought the economy 
to a tremendous state, and then suddenly basically a meteor hit the earth. In fact, Donald Trump did improve the economy a bit, but it was one or two percentage points in terms of the unemployment rate. Uh, Joe Biden can say he took an economy that was, uh, and he and Barack Obama took an economy that was at 8 to 10% unemployment and brought it down to under 5%. So Joe Biden has the better time to be made that he's really worked in a situation where he brought an economy back uh, from the Great Recession and that he could do it again. Um, Bertrand, I want to come to you with the next question. As we know, the American electorate is far from monolithic. Um, and we know also the pandemic is having disparate inequitable impacts in terms of its health and economic impacts. Do you think that same could be true in terms of the electorate, that something similar could be happening, a differentiation of impact that could play out in the electoral realm? I think it's certainly possible. I, I kind of look back to Wisconsin as a promising and a disturbing tale at the same time. Um, it was promising in terms of seeing how many voters went out to vote in the context of a pandemic, um, wanting to express their voices and views in, in places like Milwaukee. Um, and, 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 and it demonstrates sort of that will to, to vote. But the consequences of that election are very disturbing. Um, So we seem to have lost, Ber sorry, we lost you for last, the last part of your answer. Oh, I'm just sorry. Repeated. No problem. I'm sorry. Okay, so, so it's the promising and, and disturbing features of Wisconsin, and I'll focus on the disturbing features, assuming you all can hear me now. We got you. Okay, good. Um, so what we have is that 54 people um, who have uh, both tested positive for COVID-19 and voted in that primary, primary election, which is correlation, not causation. We don't know if the voting in the election caused that um, particular infection. But what we know is that many people were infected. Uh, many people um, that voted in that election were infected. Um, and as a result, we're going to have fear that's going to um, arise in certain communities with respect to voting. If you're part of a community that's most likely to be um, impacted by this particular virus, then you're more likely to be nervous about voting, um, in particular if you have these numbers coming out of Wisconsin in terms of, of a potential correlation between the two. And so what I see is a potential impact on voting behavior of minority communities, especially if in-person voting is the primary vehicle for voting. And I don't, and I, I'm a bit of a realist with respect to um, all male elections in the sense that um, it, it may be sort of the, the ideal thing that we could do, but I don't see states as having the will to implement all mail elections. Um, um, there are 29 states that have the option to vote by mail, five states that have all mail elections, but there are many states that do not. And even beyond that, there's the fact that only 25%, about 25% of Americans have voted by mail in the last election. So it's not a common way by which people vote. So in-person voting is I think going to continue to be a prominent means by which people vote. And if that is the case, then I see particular minority communities as being particularly vulnerable and nervous about voting, which could tilt, um, um, turn out in a negative direction for these communities. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the whole process of voting, Philip, and I'm going to start with you in that realm in just a second. But I want to come back to Irwin because Bertrand brought up the issue of Wisconsin, and I believe there was a Supreme Court ruling already in Republican National Committee versus De uh, Democratic National Committee around the Wisconsin primary. What is that rule? What was that ruling, and what does it pretend for the November election? I found it very disturbing, and it fits very much with what Bertrand was saying. The Wisconsin primary was going forward 
Many people had requested being able to vote by mail, but because of the number of requests there had been, they had not been processed and people would get the ballots. The ballots were all due in order to be counted on election day. A federal judge said in order to preserve the right to vote, he was gonna extend the due date for the ballots to come in to be counted to the following Monday, just adding six days. And it was simply a reflection of how many people had not yet received their ballot. The Court of Appeals agreed, but the United States Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision stopped that from happening. The five conservative justices, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh said that courts shouldn't change the rules of the election soon before they're going to happen. Justice Ginsburg wrote a vehement dissent saying what the court was doing was putting lives in danger, that this was a sensible accommodation in order to protect public health. And of course, then what we saw was Milwaukee closed almost all of its polling places. There are only five for the entire city. People stood in long lines in order to be able to vote. And as Patrol alluded to, we now know that many of them came down with COVID-19. And so what do you think this pretends for November? Well, I think it pretends many things. The fact that the justices were divided politically with the five Republican appointees siding with the Republican National Committee and the four Democratic nominees of the Supreme Court siding with the Democrats leads me to believe if election issues come to the Supreme Court in November, we might see it split along partisan lines, much like it did in Bush versus Gore. It also leads me to believe that the court's not very sensitive to the real world needs of having to accommodate a pandemic with regard to voting. And so if judges want to change election rules soon before the election, the Supreme Court's not likely to look at that with favor. Got it. So, Philip, I want to come to you because Erwin really um, kind of raised issues that fall right into your sweet spot, this issue of election security and, and public safety. How can we address both of them simultaneously? And I also want to ask you what you see as the biggest gaps in election integrity and security. So two separate questions there for you. Uh, at least an hour's worth of questions. Um, so I guess I want to raise a few issues. I'm not sure how far we'll be able to get into them, but one of them is that there's an intersection between voting technology and public health. Uh, the use of touchscreen voting machines means a lot of people are touching the same devices, and that obviously becomes a vector for the spread of virus. In contrast, hand-marked paper ballots, each individual is handling his or her own individual ballot. You can bring your own pen. You're, you don't come in contact with as many things, perhaps a doorknob or something like that in order to get into the polling place. Um, South Korea has given what appears to be a good example of uh, maintaining social distancing and good hygiene in the conduct of an in-person election, which happened recently. So the demonstration that it, that it seems to be possible to do it. Um, again, as I mentioned before, we shouldn't be contemplating online return of voted ballots, internet return of voted ballots, email return of voted ballots. If, uh, I mean, my joke is that um, if you want universal enfranchisement, um, online voting is the way to go. But universal means you're, in, you're uh, enfranchising Iranian hackers, Chinese hackers, Russian hackers, and everybody else who wants to meddle. Um, by mail, uh, certainly lets them be uh, to the safety of your there are issues around election security and election integrity that come with that they tend to be retail issues rather than wholesale issues compared to the use of widespread use of electronic technology that said it opens the door to coercion and vote selling uh, either within the home 
or through employers or others. It opens the door to widespread ballot harvesting. It introduces uh, costs around uh, verifying who's actually casting the ballot. Um, some states use signature verification. There are false negatives and false positives in signature verification, and it can also be weaponized politically, as it has in the past in Georgia, to disenfranchise minority voters by rejecting their signatures at a higher rate. So any move to vote by mail needs to be done in a considered way that ensures that there's an opportunity that, that voters can, first of all, verify that their election officials have received their voted ballots, um, have an opportunity to cure problems with signature matches and so on. There needs to be control of ballot stock. It's a bad idea to allow uh, voters to print blank ballots at home on standard office paper. Um, you want to be able to account for the paper that's sent out and that's returned. Um, there's a lot of issues around this. How, um, offering voters the opportunity to drop their voted ballots into monitored kiosks rather than sending them back through the mail. There's uncertainty as to whether we will have a postal service after June. The postal service is going bankrupt. That will obviously be a wrinkle. This is something that you need to plan for and gear up for over a period of time. The um, industry, the pre-sort postal uh, industry that does these sort of things, of things like this on behalf of election officials, needs to acquire millions of dollars of new equipment um, and get it set up and running in time to print ballots if states want to move. Um, whole hog to vote by mail. Those decisions need to be made within the next month or so. August is going to be too late. Uh, you know, in general, what we really want to maximize the evidence that an election can generate that the reported winners really did win. And the way to do that is, to the extent possible, have hand-marked paper ballots um, where for voters who have the dexterity ballots by hand, assistive technology for those who can't. Um, want those ballots to have secure chain of custody. The mail is not secure. Um, there's real issues around that. Uh, you want them uh, tabulated perhaps electronically and then audited robustly using statistical methods to ensure that the winners according to the vote tabulation equipment are the winners that a full hand count would find, the winners that are supported by the paper trail. Uh, there are a lot of these pieces in place in different states, um, but in general, uh, things are a bit of a mess. So I think you've all succeeded in the first 20 minutes of this conversation of disabusing any notion the uh, people watching us may have had. This would be a, a cure, some sort of cure for lack of clarity uh, in the current context. Patrol, um, I want to come back to you on the question of um, possibility of voting by mail. Based on your work, based on your research, do you think marginalized communities may be less or perhaps more likely to use that, that sort of setup? What do you think the impact will be in terms of your area of interest and expertise? Yeah, sure. Um, so what we know from statistics right now in terms of reported voting is that in the last election, 2016, we had about 23.6% um, of Americans that voted by mail. That includes absentee ballots as well as normal vote by mail procedures. Um, and if you kind of broke that down by demographics, you see that 24.7% um, of white voters voted by mail, 27.7% uh, of Latinx, Latinx voters reported voting by mail, and then only 17.8% of African-American voters uh, reported voting by mail. 
Now, that could be a product of the, the, the fact that um, states that allow voting by mail, um, there may be a disproportionately high or low number of African-Americans in those states. Um, I just don't know um, um, that um, whether there is a correlation in that respect. Now, what we see in California is also an interesting phenomenon in which um, um, African-American and Latinx communities are less likely to vote by mail um, than um, white voters. And so to the extent that um, that is another data point, it suggests that these communities um, typically do not vote by mail. Part of the reason that they do not vote by mail um, that has been based on survey qualitative evidence is a lack of trust um, with respect to that particular procedure, trust that their vote will be counted um, um, through that mechanism of voting. Um, there's also a tradition and history of these communities voting um, in person, and it's a important part of the exercise of their civic duty and responsibility after having been deprived of the vote in so many parts of this country for so long. Um, so those are factors that kind of work in favor of voting in person and lead sort of these communities to perhaps um, be more inclined to vote in person. Now, given the health consequences of this particular um, virus, um, I think that particularly the disparate health consequences on African-American and, and just, uh, Latinx communities, there may be a greater inclination to employ vote by mail um, procedures. But I think there has to be a huge education and outreach campaign to these communities um, to the extent that they have not engaged in this process process before. They need to be informed about how this process works. They also need to be on the list of individuals that receive ballots. Um, you know, um, my principal concern is with respect to unregistered voters. Um, it's the extent that they are disproportionately minority. Um, if states are only giving ballots to um, sending ballots by mail to registered voters, those that are unregistered are not going to receive these ballots. Um, it's a question of how do you have, how do people register in a vote by mail system, especially if you have um, um, same day registration systems that are in place in some states. Um, those late registrants are going to be in disadvantage with respect to voting by mail. So there's a lot of things that need to be worked out to, to avoid some of the disparate impacts. I, I don't have any um, aspiration for all these disparate impacts being avoided, but I think some of them can be avoided by early action, as, as Philip suggested, and also with respect to an education outreach campaign. So Henry, I know you have something to say, and then Sarah, I'm going to be coming to you. I, I have a question for you about whether the very mechanics of the election are being politicized and how the parties are using that or trying to use that to their advantage. But Henry, go ahead, please. Yeah, I just wanted to say that on an emergency basis, I think we should try to do as much vote by mail as possible in as many states as possible. That way, there'll be fewer people that have to show up at the polling places on election day. That would then preserve the possibility that somebody who wants to go to the election place on election day and essentially register to vote, which you can do in many, many states on election day, at least in a provisional way, uh, that would provide for that opportunity. And it would mean there'd be just a lot fewer people at the polling places. And it seems to me that would be the best combination of things. Unfortunately, I'm very worried that it's unlikely that the nation will move forward to actually put in all the effort that Philip was describing to make a vote by mail system really work. And it will take an enormous amount of logistical work to make sure that it, it uh, can work and work fairly and properly. Okay, um, so I'm going to come to Sarah, Philip, then to you, and then I'm going to take some questions that, that have come in from the audience. But Sarah, what about this notion that the mechanics, the process of the election itself has become a matter of political debate? How do you think this is playing out and what's going on here? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> I think, uh, like Henry said, it makes a lot of sense that during a global pandemic, it's you want to reduce the number of people who are voting in person. What's been interesting is that this has become a part of the vote by mail issue has been uh, gotten wrapped up in um, partisan bickering. So 
you know, what's at the bottom of this? Uh, it's funny because even in normal times, the part partisan implications of voting by mail aren't clear and we're not even in normal times, so it's hard to say. Um, I think most most of the time when you increase voter turnout, people think that's going to advantage Democratic candidates uh, because as turnout goes up, you'll, you'll get younger folks, people of lower income, less education, and those people tend to skew Democratic. But it's not that simple. Um, you know, so it doesn't always work out that way. Um, so what do we know from political research on vote by mail? There are some great high quality studies uh, coming out right now that show that turnout uh, in places that have switched to vote by mail has increased uh, by about two percentage points, typically. Um, and if there are any advantages for Democrats, they're small. And in, it seems like uh, in most cases, non-existence is non-existent it doesn't look like switching to vote by mail leads to advantages for democratic candidates the the caveat here is a big one though which is that these studies are done in with normal elections data on normal elections and that's not where we are right now so you have to just ask yourself what's the baseline here that we're trying to use to estimate the effect of voting by mail the baseline is people being asked to vote in person during a pandemic. Well, what's turnout going to look like in that baseline? It's going to be down, you know, and, and you might say, well, who is it going to be down most for? Uh, that's an open question. I just want to throw out there that it may be down more for older voters who are more susceptible to the virus and older voters tend to skew Republican. So then you're, you know, you're trying to estimate what what's going to happen with if you switch to vote by mail against that unknown baseline. And it's just not clear how this all uh, works out. One last thing I, I want to say is that it is I, my understanding is that there are certain key states that that it will be uh, really important to the 2020 election that already allow people to vote by mail uh, without an excuse. So you know that's another thing to factor in here: which states already allow people to use an absentee ballot without an excuse? And I, my understanding is that places like Wisconsin. Michigan, Florida already have that option in place. Philip, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, three or four different things. So one, just to, to pile on there, uh, it isn't really clear how informative historical experience is with regard to the effect of vote by mail as an emergency during a pandemic. Um, historically, the boost has been, I think, on the order of a couple of percent and hasn't systematically favored either party. That's said in Wisconsin in this most recent um, mess, uh, the vote by mail uh, votes uh, favored the liberal judge who was uh, actually elected. So that's going to be uh, used by one party probably to argue against uh, increasing the, the use of vote by mail. Um, there are a number of things that we can do to increase, to, to make it more likely that people who receive vote by mail ballots, in fact, cast their ballots. One of them is to have them be posted to pay. Um, that, that really does matter. A lot of ballots end up not getting delivered. California now uh, ballots will postage. Um, second thing I think is absolutely uh, important for election integrity and security is to allow people to drop off their voted ballots in person to monitored kiosks uh, so that you're cutting the postage, postal service out of the return of voted, uh, of voted ballots. The other thing that I want to point out is that by and large, poll workers are uh, among the as a community are more susceptible uh, to COVID than the general population. They tend to be older individuals, by and large senior citizens. 
And uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons that uh, Milwaukee ended up having to close so many polling places is that they ended up losing people to staff them. People, these are, these are volunteers, and if they see themselves as being uh, particularly at risk if they show up in person to staff polling places, that's going to be a mess. Thanks. Um, I actually lied. I have one more question for Erwin before we go for questions from the audience, because I'm wondering, Erwin, to what extent could the federal courts make sure that people can vote in a safe fashion? In theory, yes. In practice, much more difficult. The right to vote is protected by the Constitution. The 15th Amendment, for example, says that the right to vote shall not be denied on account of race. The Supreme Court has said that the right to vote is protected as a fundamental one under equal protection. So arguably, if steps are not taken to facilitate people voting, that infringes the right to vote. And the federal courts could take the steps necessary to protect it. The federal courts, for example, could order. In order to protect the right to vote, there has to be vote by mail available. On the other hand, in practice, I think it's unlikely the federal courts would play that kind of active role. I think the Supreme Court signaled in the case we were talking about earlier that they didn't want the federal courts to be managing the elections, certainly soon before the elections were to occur. So in theory, it can happen. In practice, I don't think it's very likely. Orin, I'm curious, are you, what are you hearing from your colleagues? Are there suits? Are there legal campaigns being mounted? Are there things happening beneath the surface right now that we should be aware of on the legal front that could impact the election? There are many ways in which states are trying to keep certain groups of people from voting. So states are trying to take people off of the voter rolls. There's a challenge going on right now in Wisconsin, in the Wisconsin courts. That's something that would have taken about 250,000 people, primarily minority voters, off of the election rolls. Wisconsin's not unique in that regard. Also, many states have adopted requirements for photo ID in order to vote that have also been shown to have a disproportionate impact. Those have been challenged in the courts. And I do expect a lot of litigation to go on of the sort we're talking about as we get closer to the November election. But what role the courts will play is, to me, a much more uncertain thing. Yep. Somehow I'm getting this feeling that we're going to have to bring this panel back together later in the summer because there are so many balls in the air. But let me go to some questions from the audience now. And I think this first one is probably for Sarah and Henry. And somebody asked, where in the world is Joe Biden? He's not campaigning. He's not making statements on mainstream media. What does he think? That he doesn't have to campaign? Henry, let me start with you. Well, what do you what do you think? Well, he is doing things. He's been out there and he's been having um, some stuff going on uh, at his home office and so forth. Just remember, though, it's very early right now. Uh, we still have to get through conventions. And of course, there's a question about whether the conventions will be held in person or not. And so there's all those issues. But typically we think of presidential campaigns as uh, starting after Labor Day. So that's a long way off. Uh, furthermore, for a while there, for Joe Biden, the best thing he could do was probably let Donald Trump appear on television every day for an hour or two, because as we know, that became so bad that his own pollster, Mr. Trump's own pollster, told him to stop doing it, and he stopped doing it. So uh, watching your opponent self-destruct is a perfectly fine thing to do in a campaign uh, as, a, as a strategy. Uh, I do think he's going to have to think about what his strategy looks like. Social media are going to be important. Social media like bombast and conflict, Mr. Trump's an expert at that. Joe Biden's not very expert at that. He's not very expert at social media. So his campaign is trying to focus a lot on the, pushing the idea that he's compassionate and empathetic, which is his strong point. And I do think that's the difference that could really help him 
get into the White House right now because people are certainly looking for somebody who can take care of them. Got it. Sarah, what do you think about uh, the Biden campaign and it's the first few weeks uh, since it became clear he'd be the nominee? Well, I, I agree with Henry. I think that right now with the way things are going, again, going back to the fundamentals, in some ways, things could look pretty good for Democratic wins come November. So why not sit back and, uh, you know, watch um, Republican leadership uh, in many levels of government fumble around with this really, really difficult situation? You know, politically, if you're in the hot seat of governing right now, it's just tremendously difficult to balance what to do, because if you, uh, you know, I'm referring more to governors here at this point, but it, shutting down the economy is uh, the best thing to do to slow the spread. And yet people are hurting. And this is really having a, an impact on people. And if you're successful in doing that, it's going to look like it was all an overreaction, right? It makes you vulnerable to, to criticism. At the same time, if you open things up early, then you're allowing the virus to spread. Uh, so I just think, uh, you know, in some ways, it's the people who are having to govern through this very, very politically difficult situation um, that are in the most difficult position. And, uh, you know, in some ways, if you're not in that position, it's a much easier job. So that leads to another question. I mean, social media sort of came up naturally. I mean, I think we're all anticipating that if there is going to be any in-person campaigning, it's going to look different. It's going to be highly restricted. And so we had a question from the audience, which is, how outsized do you think the role of social media is going to be in this election, given the pandemic? And I actually want to, again, sort of go around the horn here. And actually, Philip, I want to start with you, because social media is also an area that you know, based on what we know from the last election, was a playground for the Russians and those who wanted to interfere in the election? So this is beyond my real expertise. Um, it's very clear that there have been massive disinformation campaigns and attempts to set Americans against each other um, by Russia and others, um, and disinformation campaigns regarding COVID by China more recently. Um, I'm, you know, very concerned that kind of the balance of trust is really shifting, um, that uh, there are in fact people who believe that COVID itself is a hoax, uh, still at this point. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're one of those people and you see unemployment rates at 15% or higher and in excess of 25% in some states, um, it seems like you know even the possibility of civil unrest um, isn't unthinkable. So uh, there are parts of the country that are still relatively unaffected by COVID, and and for them it's easy to believe that this is all just uh, a fiction. Um, how that affects the election, uh, I I don't know. Um, I'm you know, I'll, I'll shut up because I'm I'm outside my my depth here. Bertrand, let me come to you because this obviously, you know, a greater reliance on social media, less reliance on in-person campaign events means that the fundamental way that information is disseminated during the election is going to change. Do you think that's likely to have a disparate and differentiated impact across the various demographic groups? I mean, it's possible. It's, I think that the cost of losing in-person campaign events, canvassing, which is a critical information delivery source to voters, not only about, you know, how to vote, where to vote and things like that, but just information about candidates in a way that is a little bit more, a little bit more um, trustworthy than social media tends to be. 
I fear that with respect to social media, there has been not only sort of disinformation campaigns about sort of from the Russians about Trump or the um, Chinese about um, um, or in favor of Trump or, or, or not. It's more in terms of how traditionally disinformation campaigns have worked in the past in terms of misleading voters as to when election day is, misleading voters as to whether they're eligible to vote, um, misleading voters in ways that, that have disfranchising effects. And I think that those are the disinformation campaigns I'm primarily worried about when we shift a lot of the information delivery to social media. And I think that it's just easier to proliferate that information through social media. And if there aren't any sort of in-person trustworthy sources to get information from, then that could lead to sort of a damaging effect on turnout in these minority communities that I'm um, primarily concerned about in my research. Got it. Um, Next question from the audience. Erwin, this comes into your sweet spot. This person says, I'm curious how a situation like the the Supreme Court case Bush v. Gore from 2000 could happen in 2020. Could you discuss the role of the Supreme Court in the legislature if there is a potential violation of the Equal Protection Clause? There are so many scenarios that could lead to litigation that ultimately ends up in the United States Supreme Court. What happened in Florida was a disagreement over whether to continue to count the uncounted ballots or whether to halt the counting. The Florida Supreme Court said we should count every ballot Yet the United States Supreme Court a few days intervened and said, no, it believed that Florida wanted to harbor, uh, honor the safe harbor provision for the Electoral College, and therefore the Supreme Court ordered an end to the counting in Florida. We couldn't have possibly imagined that scenario before December of 2000. And so we can't imagine now the scenarios that are going to happen after this November election. The one thing that ties this question back to the prior one is we've got to expect that this is going to be a very close election. The red states we can expect are going to be going for Trump. The blue states are going to go for Biden. But then it's going to come down to the same states as before, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, perhaps a couple of other states. The last election was decided by 77,000 votes in just a few states. That then means small things can make an enormous difference, whether it's social media or the outcome of one state, like Florida in 2000. So I want to come to our political analysts, or I mean, you have all been doing that to a certain extent, and I'm talking about Henry and Sarah, and I, Henry, I want to start with you, and then Sarah, come to you. So let's step back again. How do you think this extraordinary situation is playing out in terms of benefiting or harming each party? and their electoral chances on both statewide and national levels. Henry? Well, I think right now at the national level with respect to the presidency, I think it's obviously harmed Donald Trump immensely. He was going to, again, as I said earlier, uh, campaign on the fact that he brought the economy to an extraordinary state and maybe you don't like him, but nevertheless vote for him because the economy is so good. He can't make that argument anymore. I'm not even sure he can make the argument, as he's trying to do now, that he's going to bring the economy back again because I think Biden can trump him. So at the presidential level, it's, I think, pretty clear that the Republicans are the loser here. Um, and I think they're also maybe the losers at some of the congressional races as well, um, given that they've been in power during this period. In the states, it's going to just vary all over the map depending upon uh, what the governor did and how well the governor's judgment is uh, assessed after the fact. Uh, right now, for example, Governor Newsom, Governor uh, Cuomo of New York, 
are both riding high on the fact that people think they've handled the crisis very, very well. Governor Hogan, also of Maryland, Governor uh, DeWine of Ohio, uh, and their popularity ratings are through the roof. And in fact, one of the remarkable things is how some of the governors have these extraordinarily high popularity ratings, and Donald Trump's popularity rating went up two or three percentage points, and it just fell back right down. So he, Donald Trump's not getting much advantage, but some of these governors, at least at the moment, are getting tremendous advantage. I think the biggest thing about this campaign is the volatility. It's really hard to know how it's going to end up. If Donald Trump wins his bet and we open up America and the economy comes back a bit uh, and there are a lot of COVID cases, uh, then he might have a chance uh, of winning. I think that's unlikely, to be honest. Uh, But if, in fact, he loses his bet, I think the Democrats actually will have a tremendous victory because people will be so upset about Donald Trump's leadership. Before I turn to Sarah, um, I want to push back on something, Henry, because it seems to me like the Republicans and the president could say something along the lines of, well, this isn't a case where our policies or our failure in policies had anything to do with the economic collapse. I mean, in those situations, it's like the pottery barn rule. You broke it, you own it. Right. Um, but in this case, it was, wouldn't they argue, this was something external beyond our control. We did our best. Bipartisanship arose. Amazing bills and financial aid was provided. We did all that we could. I think the problem with that story is that there's been research that shows that members of Congress who live in districts in New Jersey, for example, where there's been shark attacks, uh, which presumably they had no responsibility for. Shark attacks just occur. Nevertheless, that hurt their reelection chances. So if bad things happen on your watch, you get blamed for them. Now, it's possible for you to try to say, well, I got to the beach quickly and I tried to help the shark attack victim and so on and so forth. And obviously, Mr. Trump and the Republicans are trying to make that case. Uh, But if the economy is at 15 percent unemployment as it is today uh, and as negative growth as it will, I think, in this quarter and maybe for the next quarter, uh, it's going to be hard to make the argument that you've actually really completely stopped the shark attacks. Got it. Sarah, I'd ask you to weigh in on the same question about how you think this is impacting the electoral prospects of each party, of each candidate right now? Yeah, I mean, I think Henry really nailed the important points. Um, uh, And I think just a few things I'll add. Um, Just the tricky thing for Republicans down ballot this fall is that their electoral fates will be affected by President Trump's to some degree. Over the last few decades, we've come, we've seen that people's voting for governors, for even state legislators, tend to mirror their, their voting in presidential elections, um, even though the job of a state legislator is very different from the job of a president. So this means that if the economy continues to be bad uh, and that uh, brings down the vote share for the, pre- uh, the incumbent president, that's also going to affect Republicans down ballot. Now, I think that that, that simple fact helps to explain a lot of what might appear to be puzzling behavior uh, on the part of uh, Republicans. So note that we've seen tremendous, some variation in how Republican governors have been handling and responding to this crisis. So uh, like Henry said, you have Governor DeWine, um, Governor Hogan, who were on the early end of issuing shelter-in-place orders. Then you have um, very different patterns with the governor of Florida, uh, Georgia opening up its economy quite early, you might look at the latter cases and say, well, what are they doing? This is going to be bad for their constituents. How could how could they be doing this? Well, the, the key thing to keep in mind is that during they will be judged in part 
based on uh, how President Trump is judged. And that, I think, is crucial to understanding uh, this and the predicament that uh, Republicans find themselves in. <clears throat> One last uh, element of nuance here, though, is that to the extent these state level factors still matter, um, uh, you know, again, as I was saying, how Republicans fare will in some ways depend on whether they're in the difficult position of governing. So if you look at a state like Michigan, where you have a Democratic governor, it's much easier for Republicans to criticize uh, what's going on there because, you know, they're not in the position of having to make these difficult decisions. So I think in general, just based on the Paris. Um, this is not good for Republicans down ballot. Um, it, it, it bodes well for Democrats, at least as things stand right now. But there are a lot of things up in the air. Sarah, what do you think about the extent to which each party might be using the pandemic in an opportunistic fashion to advance parts of their agenda that may not be directly related to the pandemic? Well, I, a couple of examples I'll say. I think on the Demo I'll say something about Democrats and Republicans. Um, on the Democratic side, you're starting to hear arguments being made, such as maybe this crisis is the moment for pushing Medicare for all uh, or universal basic income. And I think um, setting aside the policy merits, uh, I think that in terms of electoral strategy, I'm not sure this is the right moment to, to be vocal about those things because for exactly the things we've talked about. You're not worried about progressive Democrats in California voting for Trump. You're worried about moderate and independent uh, folks in Michigan and Wisconsin uh, voting for Trump, or maybe you know defecting to Justin Amash or something like that. Um, on the Republican side, a couple of things. I think this is an opportunity for Republicans to try to steer federal stimulus dollars to states that are going to be important uh, in the election. Uh, we know that. Um, after natural disasters, uh, politicians do try to steer relief funds to states that are going to be helpful to them. Um, I do think it's care we should be careful not to make this, really read into this too much. But um, an example of that is the way people reacted to Senator Mitch McConnell's argument that we're not going to send a, we don't want to send federal money down to the states. Uh, you know, we let the states go bankrupt. And I, there was an outrage uh, and reaction to that. And I, in some ways, it's understandable. The states need, desperately need uh, help. And um, there is a partisan hue, of course, to that. I think what McConnell was saying is that we don't want to send federal dollars to those big spending blue states. But people take this too far. I mean, first of all, there, I, there's no avenue currently by which states can file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. Uh, Congress, I think, would have to pass something. That's not going to happen. Um, but the second thing is people started to think, well, this is about pension pension costs. You know, this is what McConnell's trying to do is take away people's public employees' pensions. You know, I think that's not what's going on. I, I just generally think that's not what he meant. Um, pension costs are a big problem for state and local governments. But they're a problem for Republican states and Democratic states. And in Republican states, you have a lot of government employees. They, too, get pensions. You try to take those away, you're going to have political trouble, legal trouble. I just think that that is a reading into things a little bit too much. Got it. Bertrand, please. Yeah, I, I, I just kind of want to speak on that earlier point with respect to the calculations that Republican governors in Florida and um, Georgia might be making. And, and I, I do worry about um, them making a rather cynical calculation. And one of the concerns I had when there is early speculation about the disparate impact of the virus on minority communities is that to the extent that this is made into a minority disease or a minority harming or killing disease, 
um, it provides perhaps um, a willingness um, by certain um, governing actors to perhaps pay less attention and to devote less resources or to not see it as a concern that they need to be as worried about. Um, as um, voters in Georgia have felt um, um, when the governor was thinking about opening up the state that they thought that the fix was in, that they were um, being set up in a way um, to be subject to the greater harm of the disease by opening up the, the economy in the way that Governor Kemp had. And so one of the things that I'm worried about is a cynical calculation that Governor Kemp and DeSantis may, have, may be making, and I don't know if they are or not, is that their constituents um, who are overwhelmingly white um, may, may be supportive of them opening up the economy, even if it does raise the infection rates, even if it does raise the death rates, because to the extent that they are disproportionately targeting um, persons of color, um, it's, it's really not about us. And um, I hate to see sort of politics evolve in that way, and I hope that that's not the calculation that um, governors and political actors are making, but I, I'm concerned that it might be part of it. Thanks. Important point to make, to be sure. I have another question from the audience, and I'm going to ask each of you to sort of weigh in from your own perspective, because I think it touches on each of your areas of expertise. The question is, what leverage do proponents of voting reform have that now that they might not have had before the pandemic? Um, in, in meaning, to what extent will this current, could this current situation lead to changes that various groups in our in our country believe need to be made to the election system. Erwin? I think this case is great emphasis for an impetus for voting by mail. When you look at what happened in Milwaukee, where they could only open five polling places, where people stood in long lines that risked their health, I think that this will create real pressure for this election and future elections to go to some kind of vote by mail system. Philip? What do you think about changes in the area of how we vote, about the extent to which this might accelerate movement in that direction? So I agree with Erwin. I think there's a lot of pressure to expand online voting and to expand vote by mail. There, uh, the, the people who are advocating online voting are not election integrity advocates. Some of the people who are advocating vote by mail are. Uh, my concern is that it's going to be a rush and not going to be well thought out. And I, I would hope that any measures that are adopted on an emergency basis for this coming November don't become permanent. Um, another uh, election integrity battle that this figures in is the battle over touchscreen voting machines, touchscreen ballot marking devices, because there's a, there's a very legitimate um, public health argument that having fewer people touch stuff is better. Um, those are, the, I think, the, the main things that I see here. I am a little worried about issues around chain of custody for vote by mail and opening the door to coercion vote selling, although I think that that's um, something that we should probably just suck it up and deal with it for this coming November. But opening the door to more online voting would be absolutely a disaster. Henry, what do you think? New leverage for proponents of election reform? Well, I, I was in Florida in 2000 with the butterfly ballot case, and it's been a great uh, sadness to me to see at 20 years later, we still don't have a voting system it's really worthy of a country as great as America. And it, it's just a shame. Uh, and it didn't have to be so. We've made some glacial progress and things are better than they were, but not really as good as they could be given the technologies we have. Furthermore, my biggest thing that I think we should be thinking about is same-day registration uh, and easier registration for people. And I'm not sure how the current situation is going to lead to more of that. 
there's no reason in the world we couldn't have a situation where somebody could walk into the polls on election day and cast at least a provisional ballot. They can do that in many states, but not every place. Uh, and maybe even one that's more than provisional, given we could have information systems that could quickly check to see whether they had voted elsewhere and whether they really were, in fact, uh, permitted to vote. So that's what I'd really like to see. And it seems to me that would be the best thing for democracy to really move us along. Bertrand, you clearly have your ear to the ground. What do you think? Helping or hurting the cause of uh, election and voting reform? In the, uh, in the current partisan context, it's very hard to get any reform through. Um, and then after elections, people forget about it. So it's a little bit hard. But I think this might be an election that people will remember. And it might give greater impetus towards greater nationalization of federal elections, at least. Um, we had this push after Bush v. Gore, and that resulted in the passage of the Help America Vote Act. I imagine that, you know, if the Democrats were able to take control of, of offices at the federal level, that one of their pushes would be towards national voter reform. Um, they had H.R. 1 as one of their bills that they put forth, which had a package of, of, of electoral reform procedures contained in it. It was um, agreed upon and, and voted out of the House, but the Senate got nowhere in the Senate. I could see sort of more sort of national um, reform proposals being put forth and perhaps even adopted that would create a greater sort of um, uniformity in election procedures. Sarah, anything to add? I'll just keep it quick. I think um, I think it's encouraging that in this moment, people are paying attention to vote by mail. That's good that we're talking about it and, and the weighing um, the benefits and costs. I, I just want to say that there are so many different election rules that affect how many people vote and who votes and how they vote. We're still not talking about most of those, right, because they're not as directly relevant to the crisis. Um, and I think generally it would be great to pay attention to some of these other reforms that may even have bigger impacts on turnout and outcomes. So, um, Charlie, I want to come back to you with something. Um, Obviously, you've expressed concern about the disparate impact on marginalized communities. And so what can we do? What should we be thinking about in terms of protecting their voting rights and supporting their participation in the upcoming election? I think it's an education outreach program that's, uh, that is being led by trusted individuals in those communities. Um, it has to be community-led um, in terms of having folks that people know and trust or have some familiarity with leading these campaigns to provide both the information necessary to understand how to engage in different voting processes if they're going to engage in vote by mail. There has to be sort of money devoted to really making in-person voting safe along sort of the South Korea lines. The um, CARES Act, which was the relief um, reform bill that was passed by Congress devoted $400 million for election um, safety. Um, the Brennan Center estimates that $2 billion is needed, so more money needs to be put in put into that, because I think that to the extent that you make in-person voting um, safe and you provide education outreach with respect to mail-in voting, it will reduce the disparities that we might see with respect to turnout um, for minority communities. Got it. So, folks, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to go around with a final question for each of you and put you on the spot. All told, um, do you think there's threat or opportunity now? How concerned are you, and what are you going to be watching in the weeks and months ahead? Erwin, let me start with you. I think it's threat. I'll go to the conclusion where I started. Will we be able to hold an election in November that will maximize the ability for people to vote consistent with public health? I don't think we know right now, but I'm very worried about that. Philip. 
Will we be able to hold elections in a way that we have convincing evidence that the reported winners actually won? Um, or are we going to have to take it on faith? Is that going to lead to public unrest? Are we going to have a peaceful transfer of power, assuming uh, that uh, or, or continuation of the holding of power? And concerned or opportunity or threat? Where do you fall out? Uh, I'm I'm concerned. Yeah, got it. Um, Bertrand, same question. What do you are you all told? Do you think there's opportunity or threat here? And what are you concerned about in the months and weeks ahead? I think this um, election could represent the uh, greatest existential threat to our republic um, in terms of elections that we've had. Um, I don't mean to sound too dramatic about it, um, but given the importance of what's going on around us um, in terms of this particular crisis and the economic collapse that we're seeing right now and the potential for civil unrest that Philip spoke about, um, I see that as, as a major um, threat that is surrounds this particular election if it's not seen as a legitimate election. Um, and it could be seen as illegitimate because of barriers to turnout. It could be seen illegitimate in terms of counting votes. If we go to mail-in ballot voting, that means um, votes will be counted um, in a slower rate, typically a slower rate, and results come out a little bit later, which leads to the sense that it was illegitimate, those results, as we see in California every election. And so those are the threats that I see. But I see an opportunity if we can get it sort of somewhat right and we have legitimate transfer of power, we can hopefully engage in real election reform in the future. Sarah. Keep it quick. I know we're out of time. Uh, opportunity for election reform. I think there's a real threat right now to the Republican Party. Uh, I think that a global pandemic is not a great match for a party that has been where there's a large contingent that is anti-science and anti-experts. You know, experts have a lot of clout right now. 80% of people think that shelter-in-place orders right now are what we need to do, including the of Republicans. How this all shakes out is going to be really interesting to see. Um, and I think that there is this is a real uh, moment to figure out what's going to happen to the Republican Party and the ways it's transformed over the last few years. Henry, you've got the last word. Well, there may be some opportunity in this, but mostly it feels like threat, I think, to almost all of us right now. And I'm especially worried about the polarization in America and about the separate narratives that are developing. Uh, there's a narrative on the right that says that this is just a bunch of crazy experts who have sort of made up models and made up ideas about how COVID could hurt people. Uh, and uh, the distrust of science, the distrust of government is really worrisome to me in the long run. Uh, and on the left, I think uh, there's a more faith in government. And I personally, as a public policy school dean, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but that means that we just have tremendous difference of opinion in America. And the more those get riled up and the more they get emphasized, I think more at peril we are. I want to thank you all for what's been a fascinating, if pretty sobering conversation. And I do hope we can draw you together again as the electoral process continues. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, be sure to check the Berkeley Conversations webpage for information about upcoming events. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and please keep your distance. Have a good weekend.